When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wonder is free, and, and engaging wonder is free. It's one of the few things that no one can take away from you once you've got the insight. I think it's it's amazing combination of humility because you're confessing you don't know something, but sort of audaciousness because you can you can propose. I wonder if it's this or this, and it's something really very radical. That was Frank Kyle on psychologists off the clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Small behaviors can make a big difference in our health and well-being. Most of us work so many hours each week that we should think about how our work habits affect our bodies. Being able to stand sometimes while I work has made a huge difference for me. Uplift Desks has created high-quality office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. My Uplift Standing Desk allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me recharge to change positions when I get tired in the afternoon. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash P-O-T-C for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. 
And here at Psychologists Off the Clock, we are huge fans of Praxis. One of the things I love most about Praxis is they offer both live and on-demand courses. So if you're really looking for that live interaction with other people who are taking the course, you can get that. Or if you have a busy schedule and you need something that you can just kind of click onto whenever you have time, they offer that as well. And every course I have ever taken from Praxis has really been of such value to me. I get questions a lot from clinicians who are looking for ACT training or other types of trainings. And Praxis is my go-to place that I send people no matter what level they are because they have really good beginner trainings for people who have no experience. And they also have terrific advanced trainings on different topics and just people who want to keep building their skills. You can go to our website and get a coupon for the live trainings by going to our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors. And we'll hope to see you there. If you're a Psychologist Off the Clock listener and you love books, join us for our new Psychologist Off the Clock book club. We're going to be meeting once a month on Thursdays at noon Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. To join, all you need to do is go to Patreon and sign up for the Psychologist Off the Clock book club, and then we'll send you all the information. Along with your membership to the book club, you'll also have a chance to join our private Facebook group, get a monthly newsletter, and get access to free promos for various books that we'll be reading. We hope you join us. I'm here with Yael to introduce today's episode with Dr. Frank Kyle about his book, Wonder. And I just thought that this was such an interesting conversation. And Yael, I'm curious what your thoughts about the episode were. I have many thoughts. I think this concept of wonder is so cool. And one thing that I just wanted to start our conversation, Jill, off is asking you to go a little bit deeper about the difference between wonder and curiosity. Because here on this podcast, you know, I think we're all very curious and exploring lots of different ideas. So, and you asked Frank Kyle this question, but I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how to differentiate between wonder and curiosity. Yeah, I I think uh, hopefully this is the right way to think about it, but I would say that curiosity is always a part of wonder, but wonder isn't always a part of curiosity. So he gives an example in the book, like you might be curious about which state has the largest number of automobiles, and the answer is California. And the, the conversation just stops there. It's a fact. Whereas wonder has more of this wanting to know how and why about something. You know, how does, I think he uses the example, you know, how does a sunflower move? You know, these kinds of things that have a little bit more depth to them, I guess I would say. Yeah. And I think wonder is such a, there's sort of this cognitive piece and then there's this emotional piece, this sort of, you know, excitement over learning. And one thing that you guys talked a bit about that I reflected on a lot myself is the need to be okay, be comfortable not knowing, the need to sort of be comfortable not being the expert in the room, that part of why kids are so good at being curious and full of wonder, both, is because it's okay for them not to know because they're kids. And that once you get to have a PhD in clinical psychology, for example, it feels a little bit less safe to be the one who doesn't know. And yet I think 
when you sort of go deeper into the value of having wonder, it becomes a little bit easier to connect to a willingness to not know. And I think that that comes up all the time for me on this podcast, you know, when we're interviewing guests who have expertise in this or that area, and I have this sense of I should know, but I don't. And here I have this opportunity to ask these questions and be the one who doesn't yet know in this conversation, but it can be uncomfortable. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And and I think it depends a lot on the context. If we're expected to be the expert in the room, there's a little bit more of that pressure maybe of that it's not okay to say, I don't know. And I think that's one of the things I took so much out of this interview. And I've noticed it's really changed my behavior with my own kids and the way that I interact with him, and specifically in the way that you're talking about, where I think in the past, I felt more of a pressure to always be able to answer their questions, whereas now I kind of look at it more as an opportunity for us to kind of go on an adventure and try to discover the answer together, you know, to say, gosh, I don't know, how can we figure that out? You know, let's go hunting for an answer to that. And it has really made our interactions so much richer. And, you know, you'll hear in this episode, Frank talking about his relationship with his granddaughter, his three-year-old granddaughter, and some some just really interesting examples of how wonder has really opened up his experience in his life. And I, I think listeners will will learn some really cool tactics for doing the same in their own. Yeah. And I was as I was listening, I was thinking that Wonder, Frank Kyle's book Wonder and Adam Grant's book Think Again are a nice combination because Adam Grant really encourages readers to think like scientists, to sort of have curiosity and be willing to test their hypotheses and be wrong and go on a journey of exploration and be willing to be have your original assumptions proven wrong. And to the point that you're making about joining your kids in this journey, I recently had an experience. My son turned 12 years old and got a video game from my mother-in-law for his birthday, and they do a Zoom once a week. And I came downstairs to their Zoom. They were talking with one another, and the computer that they usually talk on was faced to the computer screen, and and my son was playing the video game. And then I heard my mother-in-law's voice coming out of the computer, and I was like, what's going on? And she said, I just was dying to know how this video game worked. It was like a basketball video game. She's in her 70s. She doesn't regularly play video games. But there she was engaging with wonder and curiosity with my 12-year-old son on a computer together with him. It was such a strange and adorable, sweet scene of them journeying together in this area that she probably wouldn't on her own have had any interest, but because he was so excited and she was willing to have that awe and curiosity and wonder together with him, it became such a connecting experience for them. I love that so much. And it's something that is fairly simple. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to drive an hour to the botanical garden to go learn about Venus flytraps. You know, it can be something that they live far away from one another, but can still find a way to engage that sense of wonder, even using technology and and in a in a pretty simple way. That's such a cool story. Yeah. Well, I hope everyone enjoys this interview with Frank Kyle. Hi, everybody. It's Jill here, and I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Dr. Frank Kyle. Frank Kyle is the Dilly Professor of Psychology, Linguistics, and Cognitive Science at Yale University. 
Much of his research involves asking how intuitive explanations and understandings emerge in development and how they function in adults. These topics are linked to broader questions of what concepts and explanations are, how they change with increasing expertise, how people understand the limits of their own knowledge, and how they navigate the division of cognitive labor. Dr. Kyle received a PhD in psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, a master's in psychology from Stanford, and a bachelor's in biology from MIT. He is the author of hundreds of articles and several books, including Developmental Psychology, The Growth of Mind and Behavior, and most recently, Wonder, Childhood and the Lifelong Love of Science, which is here to talk with us about today. Frank, welcome to Psychologists Off the Clock. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. You bet. Me too. Well, I just, I love this topic of wonder. I find it fascinating. And of course, I've noticed in my own kids who are eight and 10, you know, noticed it a lot when they were little and how it seems to change over time. So we will get to that, I think, in a lot of detail. But I think the natural place to start first is how we define wonder and how it's different from things like curiosity or awe. That's very important. Thank you. It's had different meanings over the centuries. And so I do take a lot of care to make clear the sense I mean is one that you see Rachel Carson, the naturalist talking about, or the astronaut Mae Jameson, or the physicist uh, Richard Feynman. And that is the idea that we want a hunger to understand how the world works. We are really obsessed with why and how questions. We want to know how things work. So this is more than just saying, wow, that's amazing, which could be awe. And it's more than simply being curious in an open-ended way, like how many windows does the White House have or how many trees that are on that lawn? It's not a yes-no kind of exploration. It's a why and how. It's hunting for deeper mechanisms. The causal structure lies beneath the surface. And the surprising thing is that very young children are just wired to do this. They're incredibly precocious this way. And up to around age five, they are just rocketing ahead in that ability. Yeah, it's really interesting. I love in your book, you start out by talking about this idea that that how naturally curious children are and how we see this in the types of children's books that appear on shelves, that all these kids' books answer how and why questions, but those types of books essentially just disappear from the adult reading shelves because of this decline in wonder. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about your research and other people's research, what the research says about why we seem to lose this natural sense of wonder over time. We're still trying to puzzle it out, but it's really quite astonishing how much it does seem to decline. This was first noticed almost 50 years ago in a study in Britain and a very careful analysis. And they found, surprisingly, this is Barbara Tizard and Martin Hughes. It happens at all social classes. They thought there'd be big SES differences, but it happened wealthy, poor, rural, urban. And these children were at age four, the why questions and how questions just took off. Some children, by the end of their fourth year, are asking 100 why and how questions a day. Then they enter the schools, and some are going down to two, one, or zero why questions a day. So I don't want to blame it on the schools. It's a very complicated convergence of factors. If you're a teacher in an average school, you have a very large classroom. You've got to get through a curriculum. You may well have to teach to a standardized test. You don't have time to entertain why and how questions and go back and forth and get into a deep dive. But that's what kids want. And so when they find out that they can't do that, and the teacher feels constrained to teach them how to answer facts, because that's what the tests were going to be on, virtually no assessment instruments ask them to offer explanations. They offer them to give facts because they're easier to grade. Mm. So there's that. There's also adult misconstruals of what children's minds are capable of. 
we tend to think of children at age five or six as being concrete in their thought. And that's just not true. There's decades of research, the last couple of decades, showing they can have quite abstract concepts. And so <clears throat> because of that misconception, that reinforces that we should treat them in a certain way that's inappropriate. And those are two sort of major themes. There's more. We reinforce them the wrong way. We often think we should positively and extrinsically reinforce children, which can undermine wonder because spontaneous play and exploration is the best way to do it. So all those things come together. And I'm not blaming anybody. I think it's a really hard nut to crack. We have some reason to be optimistic because uh, we see individuals who survive the wonder and we see places where it happens. Finland's a very interesting example. They have revamped their education system dramatically and it seems to have resulted in a lot more people being engaged and loving to ask wonder. It's a much more play-oriented kind of curriculum. It's a long story. Yeah, that's interesting. I I remember there was something you wrote about it that had to do with schooling and how you know, going back to this idea that there's a classroom full of 30 kids and that one of the things that changes is that the teacher starts being the one to ask the questions and the students are the ones expected to right. answer. It's right. And, and of course, the teacher has not much choice. And the right. questions the teacher is asking are usually not uh, why and how questions like they're more like how, what and what is and stuff. And the other thing that happens, and this is sad, is teachers get the impression that they shouldn't confess what they don't know. So uh, they, they feel like they should be the, the fonts of authority and they should just give out information that the kids absorb. But really, wondering is a co-process. It's a, it's a partnership. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the thing we have to all learn is it's wonderful to find out what you don't know, because then you have a sort of opportunity to learn something and see the world more clearly. So it's sort of like saying, I don't know, why don't we figure this out together and exactly. turn it into a process of wondering Engagement and exploring and, and engaging. Yeah, yeah. But how do you do that with a class of 30 kids? How do you, right. how do you, how do you, how do you, and so that's that's sort of the, the challenge. And I think you can master it, but it, it's very difficult. Do you know if has any research ever looked at homeschooling or Waldorf or Montessori or some of these different sorts of models to see if, if this is different even as kids get older? Yeah. It's not clear that any one kind of school works. It is clear that some kind of faculty or teachers work. Some people have this gift to engage children all at the same time and keep track of them. I describe in detail a teacher I had in elementary school who was miraculous. And and I think he taught me 80% of the science I knew before I got to MIT. It was just astonishing. And he would wonder all the time, confess his own knowledge. He also taught all of science through history which was very interesting. It was something he had learned when he was at Harvard under Conant, the president of Harvard, who tried to revolutionize science instruction that way. And what that meant was it was cross-cultural because he described the origins of internal combustion engines by starting with gunpowder in China as a way of storing chemical energy. And then went through, of course, different individuals. There was lots of discussion of failure. But he did it all in a way that was sufficient. I don't know how he did it in retrospect, but he was an astonishing individual. I talk about another person who teaches in a blue-collar high school outside of Milwaukee and Wisconsin, Sister Gertrude, who did the same thing. But these were extraordinary people. Both of them had graduate degrees, one, one in uh, math and one in philosophy. And, and they had a passion for wonder that was infectious. And, yeah. and so I think that's and, – and, and my teacher would be there on weekends. All weekends, we wanted to go and just play with him, he, you know, and do stuff, had all sorts of gear set up. So those things do happen, but it requires an incredible person with incredible uh, commitment to time that not everybody can do. Uh, 
Right. So, and, and with external pressures for standardized testing and yeah. specific curriculum, it, it, it may be impossible in terms of the systemic issues in schools. But I wonder if there are things that maybe people can learn as parents, even, you know, if, if I just want to promote wonder in my two kids or our listeners, you know, and their kids or nephews or other young people that they interact with. I wonder, do you, are there lessons to be learned from yeah. those two teachers you talked about in your book? You know, things we can do to kind of promote that sticking around? There's a lot to do. And, and I go through a lot of studies that reveal what they are. You'd learn to talk to your children a little differently. You don't ask them what we call closed-end questions. I think I hear do therapy, you know, the same thing. You want to get them to roll out what they think. So don't say, did you go to the zoo today? You say, what did you do at the zoo today? Or, you know, and if they don't say, no, I don't know, then you say, well, did you see any interesting animals? What kind were they? You draw them out. You make them realize that this is an exploration. You're not just asking us no answers or facts. And so that's one thing. The other is to immediately get excited about things that you don't know and join the, the, the expedition with them. That can be Googling or going exploring something in your neighborhood. It can be anything. So it's taking the time to sit down and figure out what they really want to know. There are studies showing they're quite amazing with kids as young as three, that if you, if the kid asks a why question and the adult just repeats it back or paraphrases it or says something circular, the kids will ask it again and again until they get some kind of mechanistic answer. They're not happy when you just try to put them off. And, and so, and if you don't know, that's fine with them. You're not diminishing your, their view of you. In fact, I think you're doing the opposite because you're, you have the, the, the ability to say, oh, you don't know, that's a big thing. You know, the best scientists are often the ones who most confess they, what they don't know. There's a very famous Socrates quote like that. The more I know, the less I know. Right. Well, anybody who has parented or or dealt with young, young kids knows the the phase of the incessant why question that starts out very cute, but then can start to feel a bit, a bit like a burden after a while. But it sounds like what you're saying is to really embrace that phase yeah. and, and respond in a different way and to continue to do so, to even maybe encourage those why questions to stick around longer so that we're not inadvertently squashing that wonder. Absolutely. And, you know, some people think, oh, they're asking why questions just to annoy me or to remain socially engaged. I don't really care. And a few kids do that, but the, the literature says that's not true 95% of the time. They really do want to know. And you don't have to give them the whole thing at once. If you happen to be a real expert on something, uh, you don't give them the entire graduate, you know, uh, thesis on it. Give them a little bit of slice. It's like really rich dessert. Let them digest it and then come back and give them more and see what they care about. So none of us can know everything about a topic. The explanations get deeper and deeper and more branching, but you can give them a little glimpse, enough tools to go further. How do you think we should respond? I'm just thinking about, I'm trying to think of examples of these kinds of questions I've gotten from my own kids and what they're doing lately at eight and 10 is not why questions as much as, mommy, did you know? And then they'll tell me something that I'm almost positive is patently wrong, like totally untrue, but I don't want to argue with them. What would be a way to respond to that that would prompt more of this wondering exploration? That's a great question. I haven't had that before and I love it. And it's a big issue because the misinformation wars are are getting worse and worse. So there's an awful lot of stuff out there that we have to think about. What I would do, and I think we did with our kids, would be say, well, I'm not sure that's right. Can we, can we look at that further? What, what's the evidence? What, 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 what supports that? And so you might have to Google or talk to somebody you know who's an expert and then explore it. The other thing to tell the child is, I want to have this, I want to disagree with you and play around with this. But you have to convey to them that disagreeing and having an argument 
is something you do to learn, not to win. So I have mm-hmm. a section of the book about arguing to win versus arguing to learn. It's so important to learn that all human interactions aren't win-lose interactions. They can be win-wins. And that's that goes way beyond arguing, but I think it's such an important lesson in life. And wondering is a beautiful example. You can be in a debate, a vigorous one, but you're smiling, you're enjoying it, you're learning. That's that's what you want. My best lab names with my grad students are ones where we're arguing but joyously. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think if I'm remembering correctly, I think you said that one of the things that leads to this loss of sense of wonder is as we start to develop more distrust and denial. And I could see if you're kind of arguing the wrong way. Like if I'm just shutting my kids down saying, no, that's not true. That's not how that works. That could breed some distrust yeah. or denial, you know, these things that would really shut and, and down all the bad, the bad D's, disengagement. Yeah. Yeah. What happens is, or worse yet, I have a, a sibling who sort of shuts him down and says, oh, that's stupid. You don't know anything. And then the kid thinks, I feel, I'm not going to engage this area. So I think the dinner table is a fascinating place to try to develop this skill. People don't eat together enough. You know, there's all these books and articles about how you should eat together and stuff. But when you do, you shouldn't be doing quizzes. You should have discussions and exploring things together. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have to practice that. It's so much fun. I mean, I, I'll give you an analogy. I had dual cataracts about a year ago. And um, I, the world was really getting blurry. And I had them removed. And suddenly everything was brighter, incredibly clear. It was amazing. And I said, yeah, that's like doing more wondering because it gives you more insight into what's going on in the world around you. I teach a course on wonder. I just started doing a seminar, a senior seminar. And every every week, students have to present something they knew nothing about that they learned something about. I have learned so much about the world around me through this seminar for them. I do it myself anyway, but I learned about how um, parakeets sing, which is astonishingly, how they, how they mimic our voices. I learned how early uh, flowers sprout in the first ones in the spring and how they have special adaptations to break through the frosty soil. And every time I go outside, the world is richer and deeper. And it's like the cataracts. I've got, the wonder wow. clears up your, it adds a new lens. I love I, I, that. And what a brilliant idea to get to now get adults to get reengaged with wonder. They love it. They tell me yeah. it's astonishing and how much oh. it's changing their, their experience. And and I I as a matter, the book has changed me. I spend a lot more time interrogating myself and thinking, what do, what don't I understand that well? And almost anything I look at closely, I realize I have all sorts of holes. And so I yeah. devour stuff and then it's just incredibly rewarding. Yeah. So that, you know, I can certainly see, you know, it feels good. I mean, I love, I think of myself as a lifelong learner and I love it when I have a question and I can find the answer and it surprises me, but what are like, why do we need wonder? You know, if we talk about the loss of wonder as a negative thing and wanting to promote it more in adults, like why do we need it? And what are some of the negative consequences of losing our sense of wonder? I think if we don't wonder, we have very few ways of learning what really works in the world and be able to have a deep discussion. We're much more vulnerable to misinformation, disinformation. We we can't have the ability to analyze and track down things. We don't even know how to approach the right experts. If you don't know anything about an area, how do you know even to who to approach to ask for opinions? So those are a lot of big reasons. I think it's important for sort of social policy reasons. I think it's it takes a little practice, but it's pretty quick to realize how much better you feel when you do it. it. it it's a bit like exercise. At first, you have to kind of work at it, but it's not that hard. Uh, and when you remind yourself that a three- or four-year-old can do it effortlessly, you know it's in you. The ember's right. there. So you shouldn't be intimidated. Just start simple. I mean, that's the other thing I, I try to tell people. Is don't start with an incredibly complicated 
exposition of it, start very simple. If you want to understand quantum mechanics, don't start with the math. Read a simple, uh, you know, description of it. I have a section on math in the book. I think math is great, but there's lots of ways to qualitatively enter into a system and slowly slide it into the math if you want to. There's nothing we can't learn about, really. I mean, it's, it's, there's always somebody really brilliant who's made it clear for us, and we can learn stuff. I'm smiling as you're talking about quantum mechanics because I learned recently that there's an entire series of books for babies that's like quantum mechanics for babies. And they're literal board books that are written at such a simple level that even a baby can get a general understanding. So this would be kind of a you're cute, right. natural place to start with wonder, even if it was adults reading these books. My, my three-year-old granddaughter has those books. And, oh, she does? And, 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 and she's, she's ferocious in reading them. She corrects me. The other day, she said to me, I'm really interested in Venus, the, the, the evil twin planet of Earth. And I said, what do you mean evil twin? She said, well, it's the hottest planet in the solar system. I said, no, Mercury's the hottest. It's the closest to the sun. She said, no, 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 that's not right. And I said, why? She said, because there's so much more atmosphere. So I said, oh, what? And she's totally right. Venus has this incredibly thick atmosphere that gives it a super greenhouse effect. Even though it's much farther away from the sun, it's 860 degrees Fahrenheit on its surface all wow. the time. And I grew up in the science fiction of Ray Bradbury, which thought it was like a tropical jungle that everybody could live in. So I learned from her all the time. You got schooled uh, by a three-year-old. Now, this oh. is Frances. Was she named after you? Yeah, she was, yes. She was, yeah. <laughs> well, it's nice of you to pick up on that. It was very, yeah. very <laughs> That's really sweet. And, and, she's, and she's a wonder machine. I mean, she's amazing. She, um, she asked me why cardinals don't migrate in the winter. She's pretty precocious. And I said, mm. I have no idea. I didn't even know they didn't migrate. And that would have made a whole bunch of different excursions about why they're red. They have to eat red things to be red. It's very interesting. And the males do it. When they want to mate, they get really red. Uh, it's a whole, I see now cardinals in a whole different way. So just listening to your own children yeah. and kind of getting into it, riffing with them, you start really expanding your own insights. So I'm very great. I feel much more, more to her than she does to me in information game. That is so cute. I mean, it's it's really cool. It's a way for you to learn from each other, but there's also like a bonding that's happening when oh, you're yeah. experiencing wonder together. And you know, you you even talk about at one point the importance of other people in helping us gain more powerful ways of speculating and exploring and discovering. And you know, I think I was thinking of that as sort of like adults to children, but the way you're describing it is almost the opposite. It is. Um, not always, but it certainly can be. It can be. Yeah. I, I Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You have a section I call the didactic predators, which is sometimes, and academic parents are often guilty of this, or professional parents, we start lecturing our kids. So we, we say, and, and we start saying, and I've seen myself do this, and 
And, and that turns them off right away. You start being very didactic and you're not partners anymore. You're saying, I'm the authority and I'm going to tell you all about the evolution of plants or I'm going to tell you all about whatever. And, and then they turn right off. They want to be paced. They want to be partners. They want to ask questions. I mean, there's so many studies in many, many labs that show present a child with a puzzle and they want to unpack it. Francis, again, I just my granddaughter's story, when she started learning about the piano, she was fascinated that a finger press could get this discreet sound. And she tried to crawl inside the piano. She wanted to figure it out so badly. So, uh, you know, I, and I want to, I hope we can keep this alive. We'll do everything we can and her parents will do everything we can when she hits school to keep that going. Well, and, and the other thing I'm thinking is kids love to teach. They love to have knowledge and share knowledge. And I'm thinking about, you know, the worksheets that come home from school where, my kids have learned something like the the cycle of a seed. You know, they always right. learn that the seed to the plant and the photosynthesis and all of that. And that in even just asking a question, tell me about that. It it gives them the opportunity to demonstrate something they've learned, right. but it's also a way that a, an adult can access their own sense of wonder, assuming it's coming from like an authentic place, not as a not as just a strategy. Do you know well, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a strategy. It can't be an authentic. It can't be just right. trying to show off or whatever. And you have to be careful. You have to make sure you don't embarrass the child. So if, if they come home and learn how the water cycle or whatever, and then you start pushing too hard, like you say, well, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I know. I told someone today how uh, more about how car engines work. And, and they said, yeah, but do you know the Carnot cycle? And they said, no, no, that's, we're not going that, that kind of depth at this point. Uh, so you can make someone feel bad and, and inadvertently do that. So you have to be thoughtful about embracing what they've done making it clear that you've done great things. If you disagree and think they have a misunderstanding, don't completely ignore it, but say, that's really interesting, but let's think about if there's any other ways. So it's obvious how to do it if you're not pressed. The problem is if you have two jobs and three kids and you're trying to cook dinner and everything else, and this kid asks you a question and you have to sit down and think about it. And another thing that comes up a lot is people say, why do we need to do all this? It's all in Google. Why should we wonder? Oh, we can just look. And, I think there's a very strong answer against that. And that is, you should use Google and other resources all the time, but you can't outsource everything because you don't even know where to look then, and you can't have a conversation. I can't have a conversation with you in real time if I have to turn to my cell phone or tablet every two minutes and Google know how to ask the next question. Absolutely. We need a mental toolkit, a, a, a schemas about how the world works, abstract skeletal ones to engage. And that's what we're missing. And I think it's getting worse. I have a section in the book where I talk about the mechanism desert. And I give the example of my college car, which is a 63 Triumph Spitfire. There was not a single transistor in that entire car. They didn't have a radio. Um, Buy a Mazda Miata today, which is a comparable car, and it has, I think, three or four billion transistors. And everything is encased in silicon. Nobody in my senior Yale students know how to even change a tire, let alone change the oil. And in my generation, almost everybody could take apart cars down to the last nut and bolt. And that's true for toasters. It's true for almost everything they see. They're just in, indecipherable. And they say, oh, we're the digital generation. We have that instead. But they know more about how to use the, uh, cell phones, not how they actually work. Right. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. And I'm not trying to diss them. I think they have a lot to do. But I think we give up a lot because then we surrender our agency. Yeah. If, if, if you read someone tell you about the COVID epidemic is a, is a fabulous example. How are you to evaluate claims that the vaccine is dangerous? How are you to evaluate claims that you shouldn't take it if you're pregnant? All of which I think are wrong, but you have to understand something about viruses and bacteria and the immune system and, and, and everything else. Not a lot, but enough to know what to read and how to look 
and who to listen to, and to have arguments that, that aren't con- con- confrontational, but arguing to, to, to learn. It's such it's such a good point. And the other thing I'm thinking about is just like quality is quality of life the word I'm looking for that you know when I think about a construct like mindfulness, you know, similar to wonder, kids are born mindful. Like you're only present and in the moment Oof. and there's no judgment yet and you're not worrying about the future and you're not ruminating about the past. And this is something that shifts over the course of time. And then we have to be more effortful at trying oh. to practice being present and mindful. But when you are mindful, you know, you eke out so much more from your experience. And when there's not judgment, it reduces suffering. So even though you still experience the pain of painful moments, there's not the suffering that comes with, you know, the judgment on top of it or that I shouldn't be feeling this way. And, you know, the wonder sort of reminds me of that, that, yeah, we can certainly just rely on Google and Alexa and, you know, whatever else, and we'll get an answer and we'll get it quickly and we can move on about, you know, our business and the 50,000 things that we have to do in the day. But when you think about what you want the quality of your day-to-day existence to look like, I mean, isn't it just a much better space to exist in when you try to um, engage your natural sense of wonder and and well, and move through the world in that way? Does that so, make sense? It's so, yeah, it's so rewarding. I mean, rewarding, think exactly. This, think of it this way. Imagine that you had a choice between wearing fuzzy, dirty glasses all day versus nice, clear ones. What would you do? There's no question about it. Every time you understand a bit more about why things are that they are in the world, you see more. You see more richer causal color uh, as a metaphor. And I, and I totally see spring differently as a result of reading and learning about what happens all around me. And the same thing for, for a car. One of the big challenges in developing cars was vibration. I had never realized that. These things used to all come vibrating apart. So when I see a car going on the road, but a new car being perfectly quiet, I say, what a marvel of vibration dampening. That's nothing you even think about. But you have to realize all that's going on is that car whizzes, but especially these electronic cars, you can't hear them. They're amazing uh, masterpieces of engineering. And appreciating that makes it a richer experience. It's like seeing much more. Does anyone ever argue that like it's beneficial to leave something to the imagination? Or I'm, I'm thinking of a, a colleague of mine who talks about appreciating a sunset just be, just because it's beautiful versus trying to understand it like a math problem, that there can be drawbacks, basically. I, I don't think so, but I'll go into this in some detail because it's a great... Uh, yeah. the, Richard Dawkins wrote a book where he talks about this issue in particular because there's a poem by Keats and where he talks about how Newton destroyed the beauty of color in the rainbow by, by showing how it decomposes in the prism. And Mark Twain actually has a rumination about this. And I argue, actually, it's not a good characterization of Keats, who was a medical student and loved science and digging deeper. It was a circle. And he has a wonderful other poem about exploration and discovery. What I think the answer is, is that the mystery gets deeper and more amazing, mm. the more you know. it doesn't. You don't solve it. What, what you learn when you start getting into it is, oh, my God, this branches and there's more and more and more to know. So it's not like you close it all out and there's no more of any mystery. It's just much more interesting. I've been reading about the plants right. lately and discovered astonishing things I didn't know. Uh, there's a conjecture that's fairly well supported called the tack of Jupiter, where Jupiter at one point, billions of years ago, came roaring in from where it is now to near Mars, stripped away the atmosphere of Mars, shrunk Mars and created the asteroid belt, and then went roaring back to beyond Saturn. And how it did this and why it did it, it's, it's, it, the solar system is highly dynamic. 
So I'm looking up there at these stars and thinking, these guys are not just static little kind of things rotating in stationary orbit. They're much more dynamic. And that didn't stop me. I didn't right. That, you, say, didn't, you don't go, up. Oh, I know everything about space now. I Nothing saying, left to I learn. I really don't know anything. Yeah. Oh, my, oh my <laughs> right. And so that's what my, my experience again and again is that, no, I, the, if you want to be impressed by the beauty of the world, you it unfolds its tapestry all the richer every time you do this. So I, I, I just disagree. And I've never seen anybody who, who once they experienced it, said, oh, gee, now I've ruined it. You know, right. And I think there's also a confound. Sometimes people turn play into work. So Twain talks about how a physician might lose interest in biology because they spend so much time fixing bodies. That's because it gets aversive to be doing it, you know, all the time. And you just have to learn how to separate that. In all our jobs, we have to be very careful not to get so obsessed with the work product that we forget. Right. And and maybe if you maintain your sense of wonder about biology, because even if you're a medical doctor, there's still more to learn. Maybe it yeah. sort of prevents that, that burnout. But, you know, another benefit that just occurred to me just because of talking to you is when you're engaging in wonder so that you're gathering this information or, you know, the things that Francis has taught you that you're now saying to me, this is a really interesting conversation. So the more you wonder, the more you learn, and then the more you have to share with other people and the more vibrant a conversation can then become. Exactly right. It does make me a bore at some cocktail parties because there's a script you should pay at cocktail parties where you say, oh, our property taxes are too high. What's a good <laughs> restaurant? What trip have you taken lately? And then move on to the next person. But someone comes to me and says, oh, our property taxes are too high. And I say, yeah, I wonder why that is. What is it about the, you know, and we, I just want to dive in and explore it. They don't want to do that. They just want to make a comment and move on. So there are certain scenarios where there's a scripted shallow interaction or diving, but that's rare. I think most of the time yeah. we really love it. And well, and how often do people say they hate small talk? I mean, I think that a lot of times we we really crave these kinds of conversations that are deeper or more interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. And we have to learn how to do it in a way that's not threatening. Yeah. I'm not going to engage in deep to show how smart I am. I'm you don't sound engage. like a know-it-all. Yeah, you're not trying to yeah. trump the other person and show that you're yeah. the master. It's just yeah. the opposite. Yeah. Wonder is free. And, and engaging wonder is free. It's one of the few things that no one can take away from you once you've got the insight. I think it's it's amazing combination of humility because you're confessing you don't know something, but sort of audaciousness because you can you can propose. I wonder if it's this or this, and, and something really very radical. You know, it's the kind of thing that despots fear because you really wonder about the system or about you know. I have a section of the book about Lysenko, whose crazy views of biology, by one argument, killed more people than any other person in history because he had these not, not only views on how to rear wheat that resulted in massive famines all across the Soviet Union, including the Ukraine, was one of the worst place hits. And then China adopted some of them too. And it's because no one dare challenge him, no one dare wonder, mm-hmm. how could that work? It doesn't, he had this Lamarckian view of, of, of breeding that was crazy. And, and so that's very important, I think. And a number of people have written on this. They say wonder is in some ways quite a disruptive, almost revolutionary kind of thing. Right. But it's also a tumble. You're not being arrogant at all. You're being just the opposite. Right. Right. Well, while we're talking about, you know, the relationship between wonder and other people, I was curious about this concept of over-imitation because I think (laughs) I misunderstood it maybe when I was reading it, because to me, it seems like over-imitation. So, you know, when you're basically just blindly doing what someone else does, it seems like it's the opposite of wonder where we're just doing or copying rather than exploring. And it made me think of the funniest story. That's one of these stories that has been passed down through my family. Although now I can't remember if it was my grandmother and her mother or my mother and her, my grandmother, her mother. 
but that they would always cut a ham in half and put it in the pot and cook it that way. And I think it was my great grandmother who did this. So that's what my grandmother did. So that's what my mother did. And nobody ever thought to ask why, Why? how does this work? Why do you need to do this? Just to make it fit, I presume. But when it got small, yes, that's it. The great grandmother only had a small pot, but then when my grandmother and my mom had perfectly large pots, they still always cut the ham in half and never thought to ask why. So to me, that seemed like it was an example of over-imitation yeah, and the we, opposite of wonder. What over-imitation is, I, I introduced it. We, we were some of the people in our lab who kind of added evidence for it and, and, and coined the name. And it is an important part of growing up because very early on, you have to take some things on faith. If someone teaches you how to operate, the, the, I always use the VCR, but they don't exist anymore, but to operate your cell phone or some other modern device, you can't really ask why all right at once. You have to take on faith. And especially when you're young, when the people around you, you can trust like your parents. It's a way to kind of catch up. You can later then dive in and ask why you did that and then start tripping away. Why are we cutting this roast every time? What's the <laughs> point of this? Um, and sometimes we forget to. It's also a way to enter rituals that are important in cultures. And so there's a really vigorous literature on this. There's no question kids do this when they're young. And uh, they do it as a way of think, becoming socially fluent. So you can't ask why you do everything. Driving a car, there are things you do. Or, you know, when you installed software, run a new program where they say, do it this way, you don't ask why, 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 you just do it. But later you do want to sort of, when you have luxury of time, start to unpack it. Because you don't want to always just do things automatically. Maybe it is inefficient. Maybe it's silly. Your your hands are drying out because you're not thinking and you're just cutting in half. I like that stuff. So I the 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 uh, the pattern has been broken. I do not cut hands in half to because you wonder them in the pit. because you said why because I wonder yeah. Well, I think it was. I probably have to give my mom credit for that one. I think she was the one who wondered and then was able to tell me the story so that I, I didn't mean, have to. I, so I think it's good to adopt what people do around you who you trust at first when you're young, but then always start asking why at some point, and no one should be offended. I mean, yeah. obviously, when it gets to religion, it gets more tricky. Uh, because some things are, are rituals that you, and so you have to know the boundaries, and that's not always easy. But I think you know, I see in my own children, they they do something we did, and then after a few years, I say, "Why do you always back in the car when it does that? Why don't you do it this way?" And, and I realized, "You're right. This is a silly habit I've got, which is because we do pick up habits sometimes that are not productive." And true, it's, it, that's it's true. Great, it's great when an outside observer can say, "Is there a reason you're doing this?" Yeah. What, you know, this just made me think because you said religion, this has come up a lot recently in my house where my daughter will say, why do people believe in God? So she's, she's 10. She's decided she doesn't believe in God, which she has been raised in a, in a, a house that doesn't have religion as part of her upbringing. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't understand. She's wondering, why do people believe in God? And she says, like, if science can't prove that God exists, why do people believe in it? And I've asked her, you know, I, well, I'm not sure. What do you think? And I can't think of what she said. I think she just says, I don't know. And, and I tried to talk to her a little bit about faith and it's not clicking. So she keeps asking. And I'm wondering, is is there like, because that's not a question you can really Google. Is there a way to, to, to promote her to continue to ask and not shut that down? But I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a very difficult question. One yeah. thing you could say might be, well, why do we have moral rules? Where do they come from? You know, and and they're, they're not obviously proven by science. There's no science of of the golden rule. You just everybody knows it's right. A lot of people think that's connected to religion. That may not be true, but there are other things we believe and know that are not related to scientific discoveries, or we want to believe. And so you just point out there's some things like that, and how they happen, 
is kind of a mystery, but it gives a lot of people uh, a good feeling. It gives them a direction in life. So, you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I'll, I'll, maybe I can bring it back to one. I'm always telling my students, and it really shocks me, that they cannot write off 70 million Americans as being uh, nuts. So after these elections, when the incredible country gets, a beautiful country gets so polarized, I have neighbors who will not have people with the opposite political party to their house for dinner for a social gathering. And, and, and I think that's horrific. And, and so when someone is religious and you're not, that's, a, that's an opportunity for a conversation to engage and say, what are you getting out of this? And then you might find a parallel. You know, maybe not be, maybe your daughter's not religious, but maybe she believes in something else she can't justify. She believes strongly mm-hmm. about it. And so, so and I could even encourage her to ask her friends, not in a an attacking or a defensive way, but in a curious, open way. Tell me why you believe in God. Oh, no, yeah. maybe I want gently say. So, why does this feel good to you? Why, why, mm-hmm. why do you enjoy it? And, yeah. and 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 you know, she might learn something interesting. I mean, I tell all three of our sons to go across, drive across the United States, and go to the Iowa State Fair. It sounds silly. But these bicoastal kind of experiences, they forget about this whole middle part of the country. Yeah. Life transforming for every, every one of them. And many of the kids at Yale have been to all the continents, sometimes even Antarctica, but haven't been to Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And I, that's insane. So I think wondering does help, being openness, open to have discussions and explore things. We don't do enough of that. So when we get to the religion case or anything else, that's kind of there shouldn't be taboo topics, I think. I think things are uncomfortable. But it's very hard. My undergraduates tell me they don't like talking about difficult issues. They're too worried about offending people. Yeah. I used to be a residential college head, my wife and I. So we lived with this 400 students for 11 years. And we one time started a difficult issues table. One night a week, we talk about two, two touchy issues that they don't want to discuss without some kind of moderation. No one would come. They were too uh-huh. uncomfortable. They were too worried about offending somebody. Yeah. And I get yeah. it. But, but that just tells you. And that's too bad. And I think we've gotten more that way in the last few decades. And I don't want to link it just to wondering, but I think there is this welcoming of discourse. You know, that in my generation, you could have discussions with people from off the ends of the spectrum without feeling like you were going to be insulting them morally. Yeah. And I think it all speaks to how desperately we want and need to connect. I mean, we're hardwired evolutionarily to connect with other human beings. And there was a time where having hard conversations maybe facilitated that, but with everything that's gone on over the last six plus years, that feels so threatening that it feels safer right. to, to avoid these conversations. It's, it's, it's not just, I don't want to offend people for the sake of not offending. It's, I don't want to have a rupture in a relationship, I want to connect. And the way I feel like I can connect is to just have safe conversations with people who are like me. And then and then we 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 lose opportunities to connect with a lot more people. And you, and you lose depth. You lose kind of deeper yeah. kind of yeah. insights. Yeah. It's a I huge issue, as I'm sure you know much better than I do. There's been a kind of sea change in college campuses with anxiety rising, people worried about offending each other. Yeah. And I don't, again, I don't want to tie this all to one concept, but I think we do have to learn to embrace each other to embrace the joy of learning about each other, about issues, and, and, and realize we have much more common common humanity than we sometimes uh, realize. We are more alike than we are different. Way more. Yeah, that's so true. Well, tell me, do you have, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time. So I'm curious if you have a favorite or most surprising or most interesting study or finding. I'll tell you one that we did in our lab years ago, it's still done in other labs, it, it staggers me. 
We had children as young as 11 months watch a simple array of objects, which are all disorderly. Imagine this is a metaphor. This isn't exactly how we did it. It was more controlled. But imagine you go into a room and all the toys are scattered around. Now a screen comes up and either a person goes behind the screen or a ball rolls behind the screen. Screen comes down and all that order, disorder is neatly ordered. They're very surprised. They can't even speak, but they show great surprise if the ball did it, but they think it's fine for the person to have done it. Now, so the opposite where it goes from order to disorder, and they think either one could easily have done it. So they know at some level, before they can even speak, that only intentional agents can create order of disorder, or basically reverse entropy machines. Now, you can ask adults to explain what's going on because they have the same reaction, and they get a bit tongue-tied. And older children can't explain it all, but they know it at some deep level. That's learning about the causal structure of the world at a very abstract level, not concrete, that's incredibly powerful. Recognizing that intentional agents have a kind of power and agency that nothing in the inanimate world has. And there's, there's dozens, even hundreds of studies now demonstrating aspects of that. It's very hard to do infant studies, so it's not what I do most of my time on, but once in a while they can really reveal stuff. So that's one example. Another one, which actually we just finished, which was really fun, was people underestimate how much children like complexity. So we took an adult Votech engine training video for mechanics about how the internal combustion engine works. It's about an eight-minute video. It's really complicated. There's every gear, every cog, every valve, and it had a kind of boring narration. And all we did is change the narration and make it more friendly and, and made some of the wonky terms sound more comfortable. We showed it to five-year-olds who were absolutely, totally fascinated. All the adults we asked, would they be interested? said, no way, they'll be totally, no, they loved it. And they learned all these abstractions. They don't remember all the details, but the world is messy and complicated. And children have evolved to deal with that. So they came away knowing stuff because they watched that video. Like when one part speeds up, other parts have to speed up too. It's not a trade-off. A priori, people think maybe one part speeds up and the part has to slow down. That's not true for engines. And they learned that abstract principle and could articulate it back to us in, through testing. And they learned three or four other principles. That's fascinating that, that wow. they can do this. They're equipped. And so don't try to always oversimplify. Let kids see the glory and riches of the world. Give them a little help in terms of understanding how to get insight. They don't realize how much they need outside help. Uh, but you don't, want to, you don't want to broadcast it. We've also done studies showing that they can only succeed in tasks when you're helping them. It's called scaffolding. But you don't have to tell them that you're doing it right away. Give them some feeling of success and accomplishment. Yeah. You, you know this whole scaffolding literature. If you want to teach a kid how to make a bed, you might sort of cheat by laying out all the materials in a sequence. And they'll make it beautifully and they'll come back and say, I know how to make a bed. And you give them a laundry basket and they can't do it at all. Yeah. But that's okay because they start to get a foot on how to do it. Right. So those are the kinds of studies that I just I just love to read about or do in our own lab. Well, and and they're they're so many of them are so surprising. I mean, especially as a psychologist, obviously I was trained about Piaget and you know, this from concrete to abstract developmental changes. And that persists today. I mean, I think that's, it, it, I, I, I still was shocked when I read that, like, wait, that that's not accurate? I had no know, idea. There's a lot of stuff on that. It's a fascinating question why it persists. And part of it is because, and I talk about this at length with when I discuss Maria Montessori. Montessori schools often almost repeat this like a mantra. It may be sometimes, not always, a good instructional technique. Sometimes you start with concrete materials and go to more abstract representations. But what you're teaching may be abstract throughout. In other words, the materials you use may be concrete, but the concept is wrong. And Montessori knew that. When Maria Montessori wrote about it, she said, often the math is latent within them. We have to use materials to get it across to them. 
So that's part of the problem. There are other reasons too. Um, yeah. I mean, in praise of Piaget, he made us think about all this much more seriously. He, he raised the issues. He did incredibly interesting studies. But yeah, we've moved on a bit from that and we've learned a lot more. Yeah. It was really interesting. And, you know, I, I learned a lot from reading this book and things that I had no idea that were not accurate. So my sense of wonder was high as I was reading the book and I appreciated, you know, learning so many new things. So we're, we're about at the end here. Let me ask you one last question. Knowing that adults tend to sort of lose this childhood's sense of wonder over time, what can we do specifically to reconnect with that now? There are a bunch of things you can do. In my last chapter of the book, I run through some of them. Um, you can try to monitor a bit what you do, make a checklist. How many times in the last week uh, did I ask why or how versus just what is or what that? You might look at your Google search history. Go on your browser and see what questions you typed in. Did you say who won uh, uh, Grammys in 63? Or did you ask why did the such and such a musical genre decay? What kind of questions are you asking? And if you're not asking enough why and how questions, think about maybe why you should, how much more they give you insight. The other thing to do is sometimes think about something you think you know really well and probe it and go through it step by step. And you'll usually find these holes. And that shouldn't discomfort you. That should be wonderful. It's a good kind of discomfort. It's the kind of discomfort you want. It's it's exciting. And 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 realize that that's what you want. You want to learn. Discovering a hole in your knowledge should be a joyous experience because it's an opportunity to expand your toolkit. And and I try to I try to change my mind about something significant once a month. If I go back over my car a month and say, I haven't learned anything new or different, I've not been working hard enough. Work is wrong. I've not been playing hard enough. Mm. And and so and the more you do it, the more it begets it. I have a large section on people who are polymaths, people who knew something about everything. And the, the constant theme that runs through their lives is this incredible joy and insatiable pleasure of doing this. And it becomes almost like an addiction, but it's a healthy one because it's social, as we talked about. It's rewarding. It's free. And it yeah. makes everything you do more more rich. I think it probably helps the self-esteem too. I know, you know, my husband is kind of one, you know, he's really good at Jeopardy. He knows a little bit about a lot of things. Right. And he's a guy, he's a tech guy. And so he goes into these internet holes where he's asking these how and why questions and knows so much. And then I and I think it's something he's really proud of and gives him some confidence. It makes him feel smart, you know. <laughs> it, it feels good. And and yeah. you know, and he shares it with others, I'm sure. He does. I mean, you should always also be happy to start small. So we talked about starting with kid videos or, or Eleanor Wonders Why, this new, very good new TV series. You can read something that's a very easy way. I like reading the history of science because if you go back far enough, they had no idea. And so you can stumble around with them. I mean, a really interesting example is electricity and magnetism. Michael Faraday, who did more revolutionary things with probably the origins of electricity and magnetism than anybody, knew no math. He was a blacksmith's son. He hardly educated. But he had these gorgeous diagrams and this extensive how to experiments. And then Maxwell, who made the, the very complex Maxwell's equation, which unified electromagnetism and electricity, said Faraday was the whole reason he could get there. So you can be Faraday if you're, if you're intimidated. Start with as he did when you knew nothing and get into it. And you can do that for almost every science. You can be Mendel. You can, you can go back and find the, the, the early pioneers. So that's one way to enter if you're worried about it. And reading the history of these people's lives is so fascinating. And yeah. so I, I do a lot more of that than I used to. And that never fails. I mean, these people are so interesting. Mary Somerville, this amazing polymath in her own right, who one of the Oxford colleges is named after. Uh, oh, 
Jennifer Doudna, the, the, the CRISPR inventor who lives in San Francisco, her life is astonishing. There's a recent biography of her by Walter Isaacson. <laughs> so reading about them and what they were like as children and how they learned, then, then you learn. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Those are great suggestions. We'll encourage our listeners to go out and start asking some high and how and why questions. Or just Maybe to read you can, about. Or yeah, just to, to read about read about folks early early lives or whatever it is that they're interested yeah. in. And maybe you can put your wonder class online so that it can, you know, there's that happiness class. I can't remember where it is, but you know, now like tens of thousands of people have taken it. Maybe your wonder class is next. It's my colleague, Lori Santos. I don't have her skills. So oh, that's I, right. She is there. Yeah. yeah. That's it's right. wonderful. It's that's a right. terrific class. This has been so great. Thank you so much for, for joining me. I think this has just been such an interesting conversation. We appreciate your time. Uh, no, I appreciate it too. And, and I appreciate your, your spreading the word. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.